Hey there, I am Barb Higgins, and this is A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to retrace my steps under what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. By doing so, I hope to not only help myself, but to bring purpose and possibility to those who listen. If you are ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, then tie, buckle, face up, or slip on your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 121, 121 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So those of you that can see me, I look a little tired today and haggard. I look puffy. Maybe it's how I feel and that's how I'm seeing myself right now. And it's sort of interesting that this is how I look and feel because what I'm talking about today is all about a healthy way of living. And as we're now in between Christmas and New Year, this is the time of year that people start to think, okay, you know, five or six more days of eating like crap and drinking too much and not going to the gym, all the things that happen during the holiday season, right? All our hard work sort of flies out the window as we spend a lot of time traveling and visiting and vacationing, spending time with family. All very important things, by the way. Health is a lot more than your height and your weight and your body fat percentage. But I'm starting off just not feeling very good about myself. I've been sick, so I'm recording this in the beginning of December. And I've mentioned before that I've just gotten over COVID and that wasn't bad, but just being sick in general, I can't work out, puts me in a bad frame of mind. I don't see people that are important to me. I lose my connections. I feel isolated. It's interesting, right? In my lying around and being sort of stuck at home, I fell upon mini series on Netflix called Living to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zone. And like any series or documentary or program that espouses a certain lifestyle or value or whatever, you're going to find pros and cons for everything. But this was a very interesting look at several areas on the planet that have a large percentage of people living into their 90s and over 100. And not just living that long, but living in a very, very healthy way. Most of these communities, actually all of these communities, completely lacked nursing homes or assisted living facilities. They also lacked (laughs) a lot of mechanisms that make life easy. They were very rural communities. Several of them were in warm climates. So, you know, sometimes you think, okay, I have to live in the middle of nowhere, you know, south of the equator <laughs> to be healthy. And, and that may be a piece of why these people live so long. Having said that, I don't think that's the key takeaway here. So as you all know, the whole purpose of my podcast, writing my blog, constantly searching for A, where I've gone wrong, B, where I should have turned left instead of right, C, what I wish I could unsay, D, what I wish I had back, and E, what the heck is ahead of me? All of these things drive a lot of what I do. I'm the consummate student. I love learning new things. I don't always intuit what I learn. I don't always follow what I think. You know, like everyone else, I have different levels of success and everything. But there were some key takeaways in this documentary that were interesting and important to me. And so I'm going to go through some of what they are. So as you're watching the documentary, there are only four episodes. Each episode is about an hour long. There's a chart that gets slowly filled out as you go along with key takeaways from each place. And then at the end, they sort of summarize from all of the key things that people in these different communities do. They summarize things that we all could do. And in fact, the gentleman that did this study chose a community in Michigan, a town of about 18,000 people. And I'll get to all of those details in a moment to see if he could create a blue zone. And the city bought into it and funded the program. And they did a lot of things that, that generated community and all of the things that go into creating healthy living. Some of them were surprising to me, some of them not surprising at all. And when I look at the specificity of them within each thing is plenty of room for every style of thinker, male, female, or other, you know, religious or not religious, learned or not learned, whatever. It doesn't really matter what you bring to the table in a million different ways. All of these things apply to everybody. There were certain things that everybody did in every blue zone. So there were four areas of living that came out of all the different places that were looked. Move naturally, have a positive outlook, connect with people, eat wisely. These four things. So move your body, live in gratitude. I've been talking a lot about how much gratitude bugs me. Connect with friends and family and eat wisely. 
So under those headings are the following. So move naturally. The healthiest communities did a lot of their daily tasks by hand. They didn't toss their clothing into a washing machine and push a button. They washed their clothes. Now, that's a remote community. All of these places, they gardened, they shoveled their snow, they swept their floor, they washed their homes. They took care of their their lives. Their daily tasks involved movement. All of the communities had people that walked every day to complete their grocery shopping, to go to school or work, to visit people. Walkability was key. So do things by hand, garden, and walk. These were the three things. Notice it doesn't say join a CrossFit gym, right? (laughs) Damn. All right. Then the outlook, underneath outlook, part of it was to unwind, that you have to build in to your daily routine, unwinding, taking a breath, sitting and thinking, doing nothing, just letting go. Follow some sort of faith. Now, let me be clear here. It didn't, it didn't espouse a religion or a prophet, but all of these people functioned by having a sense of purpose. They functioned by knowing that they were alive on the planet for a reason. This has nothing to do with whether or not you believe in God, at least in my interpretation. Following a faith is like having a life goal or a philosophy under which you live. But it's important that you have something so that when you open your eyes, you know that you're a part of a bigger circle. And then to have purpose, that becomes pretty prevalent in the episodes. The next one is to connect. We're not islands. Even though a lot of these people live on islands, human beings are not meant to be alone. That doesn't mean if you're an introvert and like spending time alone, that you shouldn't be alone. But finding ways to connect with others that are like you, that you have a solidarity and camaraderie with, that will care for you if you need help and you can care for them if they need help, is a key piece to longevity. So family first. Now, my neck hairs go up a little here because not all of us are lucky enough to be born into families that make sense or that we want to stick around with. Family can be very loose here. Creating family, chosen family, is family. And it's important that you feel a part of a family. Partnerships, whether that's a spouse or a best friend or a loved one or a life partner, having a partner and having partnerships in your life. And then your right tribe. And your right tribe is your community. And a lot of these community, these different communities have words for this. One example was it was in, a, in an Italian village. And so it was extended family, but it was also some elderly people from other families. Their families had died or were no longer nearby. And so that family would sort of bring in people from other families. So nobody was alone. There was a woman whose husband died and she was brought to a hospital and she was lying on a bed and she just didn't move for days and days. And her neighbors went and got her and brought her to their house and fed her and took her for walks. And she's vital and vibrant. And she's a huge piece of the functionality of their family. It wasn't okay for their neighbor to be isolated and alone. So that's your right tribe. And then eat wisely. So most of these cultures had a plant-based diet. They weren't necessarily vegan. There was meat involved in, I think, every single community, but it was like 5% of the diet. Maybe a couple of times a week, there was meat in what they ate. Most of these communities got their protein from beans and other and deep greens and other ways. Have a glass of wine every day. Now, everyone's going to go, yay. I will say the wine consumed in these communities by these people was not processed, did not have chemicals or additives. I don't think you could buy that kind of wine here. Two of the communities made their own wine, and that's what they drank. But the point is, the wine and the health benefits in the wine was meant to help physically, but also the act of sitting down together. Let's sit and have a toast and share a glass of wine. Doesn't mean five glasses. It doesn't mean drinking a whole bottle. They don't overdrink, but every day they do have a glass of wine, a happy hour. And then moderation. This is under diet now, but everything is moderate. They don't overeat. They stop eating when they're 80% full. They have a well-balanced diet. They don't have too much of any one thing. Sometimes they eat what's available. So depending on the season, you might eat a lot of one thing at one time of year and a lot of something else at another. None of these places imported food from all around the world either. They ate what they could grow and what would function in their environment. And when you look at all the different food plans that exist in the American reality and the different ways that we're told to eat, sometimes you're supposed to eat for your blood type. There's one about eating for your nationality, where you come from, that if you're Italian, you process food differently than if you're German. And that very well could be. Evolution can cause changes in the body. And so evolutionary changes can be very specific to your nationality. 
that was sort of honed down into a power nine. And if you Google this online, you can find these. So the power nine was nine things that went into living to be a hundred. So what the first one is downshift. So take a step back, slow down, stop cramming 50 things into your, into your life. My Christmas present from my podcast editor was a shirt that says jello time. And it's got like a jello. It's the most amazing thing ever. And Jello time in my vernacular is letting yourself rest. That if, that if you want the hard work to pay off, you have to sit and rest and give it time to work, to settle, to recover. And I'm the worst. I seldom have jello time in my life. This whole moderation and you know downshift is very difficult for me. That's a huge focus for me in this power nine, downshift, take it down a notch. The second one is purpose, have a purpose. If you look at religious teachings, every religion's major purpose is for its followers to know and love God and to live a life that exemplifies their love of God. I look at this very holistically, simply meaning have a love of all that God provides. So have a love of nature, have a love of your body, have a love of the people that you have around you, have a love of your bounties, you know, love what you have and, and live a life that shows that you appreciate and love what you have. Very, very religious people will look at this as follow a list of rules and doctrines, whatever it is, having a sense of purpose, the reason you wake up in the morning, maybe it's just to make sure your cat gets fed. Maybe it's to make sure your little shop that you sell, your, the things that you make stays open. Maybe it's to make sure you know, that your mom and dad are okay. Who knows? We all have different reasons why we live. Maybe it's just to make sure you wake up and get to do what you want to do. And then the third one here is plant slant. So this goes back to following a primarily vegetarian diet and not just vegetarian, but also legumes and beans and tubers and all the different types of food classifications that we have. Wine at five. So that's the happy hour. Now, there was a group, one of the groups in Loma Linda, California, that's a blue zone. They're all Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Adventists do not consume alcohol, but they have their happy hours. They have their community time. They just don't have alcohol at it. So it's not the alcohol so much that's important. It's what getting together for that glass of quote unquote wine represents. The 80% rule, the 80% rule is stop eating when you're 80% full. Don't eat until you feel full. Stop before you're full, sit for a bit, relax. And then see if you really do need to have more food. Move naturally. Walk around. Don't sit and push buttons. Get up and change the channel. Although TVs, you can't even change the channel on TVs anymore. When I was little, you had to get up to change the channel. And then you sat back down. You know, We have made life very, very easy. Find your right tribe. right? Find your right tribe. Make sure that you associate yourself with people that support you, that honor your boundaries, that support your beliefs. Find those people and belong belong. You need to have a sense of belonging, whether it's in a family or a group of friends. And that's similar to your right tribe. You can have people in your life that are your right tribe that you're affiliated with and not necessarily feel that you belong. And it's important to really truly find places where you feel like you belong. So these are the takeaways from this four episode series. So in my cleaning and getting ready to do our kitchen over, I found this journal. And so if you can see me, it's got an elephant on it. One of the things Molly and I both love to do is buy journals and we'd start writing in them and then we'd stop. There's a box in the attic of Molly's journals, all these half, not even half filled, half filled would be a success story. And so I found this journal, it was completely empty. And so what I did was I went through and took all these amazing notes. If you're, if you're watching, you can see my beautiful handwriting and these are notes from the series. And so I'm going to quickly talk about each, each place and talk about some of the words and things that stayed with me. So bear with me. It's kind of like a learning this is sort of like a little lesson episode, but it really it stuck with me. So the first Blue Zone location was Okinawa, which, in the, which is an island off Japan. So since this was done, this was filmed, you know, 15 years ago, Okinawa has had an influx of fast food restaurants, real Western influence. And a lot of the people and the way of life there has changed, which is sad. But at the time of this documentary, the basic Okinawan principles for life, they weren't even thinking, oh, I'm going to do this so I live long. But when, when these elderly people, these people in their 90s and 100s were asked, what's your life like? Always have fun. So find fun in what you're doing. Do not hold on to anger. Now, this is another one. I've been so angry for the past couple of years. I have to let this go. Forgive quickly. Mm. Laughter equals longevity. I've always felt that way. One of my favorite books is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And one of the main characters, Chief, is talking to McMurphy, who is the character that gets sentenced to go to the mental institution. And he says to McMurphy, if you lose your laughter, you lose your footing. And I've never forgotten it because it's so true. Levity and being able to laugh in the face of everything is important. 
Talk often. All right. I think I win this one. Make everyone happy. So of course that brings me back to Molly. I think my purpose is to make people happy. And then balance, have balance in your life. And this might be where I, where I struggle. Eat an array of foods that are healthy and facilitate healing. So the American diet is not about facilitating healing at all. The American diet is about satiating desire. I have a sweet tooth. I'm going to eat this. I have a fat hankering. I'm going to eat this. I'm in a hurry and I just want it to taste good. I'm going to eat this. We do not create food for healing as a governmental practice in the United States. We create food that causes illness so that we need to be healed, which causes us to need to buy pills. And that's my little summation of this. Walk daily. This was a big one. They walk every day. Speed. So they walk quickly. They do things quickly, right? They move quickly when they're moving around. Sit on the floor. So one of the big key indicators of your longevity is if you can get up off the floor without using your hands. So right now, I'm not sure that I can. And it comes from my knees and my hips sort of hurting me. I think I could if I really tried and had to, and if I had enough momentum. So there are times that I can, times that I can't. And I go to CrossFit every day. So what do you mean I can't get up off the floor? It's a lot harder than you think. In Okinawa, most of the homes have very minimal furniture. People sleep on the floor. Their tables are low and they sit on the floor to eat at them. They don't sit in chairs like we do here. They don't lean back on a recliner or a bed. They squat and they sit on the floor. Garden, get out and garden. So I know for me, when I'm stressing out, like this summer when I did the 75 hard, gardening was one of my two workouts a day. And I'd go out barefoot and I'd get in the garden and I'd pull weeds and I'd hoe and rake. It was wonderful. I liked the smell of the dirt. I felt better when I was done. I wouldn't have felt that good vacuuming a living room, but I did feel good gardening. Have a committed social circle. And then listen to this, endure with gratitude. I did a live a few weeks back as you're listening to this. And I did a blog about gratitude and that we all think you're only grateful when you're happy. And if you have to be happy to be grateful, nobody's ever going to be grateful. You'll be grateful once in a while, right? So endure. When you endure something, you're getting through it. You're holding on, you're, you're managing it. The word endure does not evoke feelings of happiness, but it said they endure with gratitude. So if you know anything about World War II history, Okinawa was one of two places in Japan that was decimated in World War II. And they had incredible suffering and lost so many people. Well, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were the nuclear, where the nuclear bombs were, but Japan was decimated during World War II. The key takeaways were medicinal foods, calorie-dense foods, Harahachi boo. Harahachi boo is a Japanese term that means stop eating at 80%. Balance. Your mao, your moi. Your moi is your community. M-O-A-I. That's your community. Who are your people? And then your ikigai. Ikigai. I-K-I-G-A-I. Ikigai. Find your purpose. That's just a wonderful sort of way of living. So through purposeful, thoughtful eating, growing and preparing a food, stopping at 80%, sitting on the floor, moving through daily tasks fully, engaging in meaningful social circles, and invoking a purpose in all that you do. What a way to live, right? And I think all of us, if we really looked into ourselves, wouldn't disagree with any of this. Of course, these are good things to practice, right? In the 1970s, this is an interesting piece of history that was going, along, going on. So I was born in 1963, and there were no commercials about pills or medications. There were no commercials about health. Commercials were to get you to buy stuff not to go to your doctor and say, I think I should take this medicine, right? I remember the first time I saw a commercial for Allegra as an allergy medicine. And I looked at my mother, I'm like, they're putting drugs on TV? Like you have to get a prescription for medicine. You didn't go to the pharmacy and buy all sorts of pills to take. That's not how it was. If you needed medicine, you went to a doctor and to a pharmacist. So in the 1970s, the Food and Drug Administration decided to add calories to food, that there was a certain amount of calories you needed to burn a day, and so if we put more calories in existing food, then people wouldn't need to eat as much. Except at the same time, we started offering larger portion sizes. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm a conspiracy theorist, but when you really look at every other culture in the world, aside from here, you go to restaurants in Europe and you look at your plate and you think there's hardly any food here, but it's plenty. You eat it and it's plenty. The serving sizes aren't ridiculous. So the government made the decision to add calories to food along with increasing portion sizes, adding hormones and chemicals to food and dyes to make them colorful. What was once a relatively clean food item was now injected with dye to make the color last, to make it look yummy. Hormones and chemicals were added via the animal the food came from or the dirt the food grew in. 
so that lettuce or rice, anything that you're growing in the United States was now genetically different. And I remember watching a documentary, I'd have to gosh, a lot like I was in college thinking it was a good thing. Wow, they're putting like extra stuff in food to make it better for us. <laughs> when really what they were doing is altering the food. So that's Okinawa. The next place is Sardinia, which is a little island. It's on the island of Sicily and it's way up in the mountains. It's high and remote. This is another place where one of the biggest issues here is it's on a steep, steep hill. So one of the women they interviewed was 100 years old, 102. And they asked her, what's your day like? Oh, I get up and I walk to church and then I do this and that and I go to the market and then I come home. Well, how do you get to church? I walk. So they walked with her to church. It was up a steep, steep hill. It took her like 10 minutes to walk to church and the whole walk was uphill. And then she had to climb all these stairs to get into church. And this is what she did. She did it every day. You wouldn't know for a minute that she was a hundred. She also prepared her own breakfast and it wasn't putting microwave oatmeal in a pan and pouring some water and hitting a button. She you know, needed dough and she cut things and she started a fire or, or turned on a cook stove. She stirred soup. She made her breakfast. It wasn't a simple process, right? This was her life and their lifestyle is such there's room for this. In this community, the key takeaways were the hills. There were communities several miles down the hill that were flatter, that didn't have the same living, didn't have the same life expectancy as this, these places did. Another thing that was noticeable here was they were not stressed. They didn't stress over their jobs. None of these people were wealthy. They had enough. They had food. They had simple homes. But all of them said, I like my work. I like what I do. I have everything I need. I'm not stressed. I'm not unhappy. They also would work for a few hours, take a nap, have a nice lunch, go back and work for a few hours, stop for the day, have a happy hour, have a nice dinner. Their days were interspersed with socializing, with community, with connection, with laughing. This was their daily life. The steep terrain was key here. Very high carb diet, but let's, let's re-identify carbs here. Not crackers and cookies and bread, although those bread is a part of it. Sourdough bread for the most part. But the carbs are colorful, colorful vegetables and fruits. High carb diet healthy, healthy, single ingredient, naturally grown carbs, fruits and vegetables. They control their stress and they care for their elders. So I recently took my mother to the doctors and we had a wonderful day, right? It was fine. We had a good time. I took her, you know, she obviously, she was independent on some levels, but needed help on others. I looked around and saw lots and lots of older people at this doctor's office. It was a dermatology appointment. She had a little skin cancer to get removed, but it's so focused on illness. Like everything is focused on what do you need help with? And what can't you do? And what are you taking? And here's how you need to be careful and don't do this. And oh my God, you know, the, it was all, I came out of it not feeling like I'd been in a very healthy place. It was an interesting observation. One of the reasons for eating sourdough bread is that there's an enzyme in it that absorbs sugar from your bloodstream, right? So it's, if you're a diabetic or you have a high blood sugar, it's also lower in gluten. Now keep in mind, again, gluten is a byproduct of the processing of food in America. You can go to Italy and have pizza every night. You're not going to have a gluten reaction because the bread is fresh. It's made daily. And the flour that's grown isn't full of chemicals from the dirt that it's grown in and what's sprayed on it. It's very different. They cope with things actively. They control what they can control and they let go of what they can't control. I did a Facebook Live this morning and this morning would be early December. And I talked about, you know, you can't control the suck. You can control about how you feel about the suck or how you manage the suck. And essentially that's what they're saying. They can't control the weather. They can't control some of the things that need to be delivered to their island. If they don't come, they can't control. There's many things they can't control. So they don't stress about what they can't control. They modify what they can control. They understand that chronic stress is unhealthy. And the caring for elders. So there are no nursing homes. This would probably be one of the most difficult things for me. And it's not that I don't love my parents, but I'm one of those kids that I've been, I've lived a very parentified life always in my life. I was parenting somebody, even when I was little, little, little. And I don't say this to be mean to my mom because I think she was overwhelmed and doing the best that she could. But I remember when my little sister fell down once and skinned her knee and she came into the house and my mother knelt down and put her arms out and she went right by her and came to me and wanted me to comfort her and put the Band-Aid on. And my mother, it was an eye-opening experience for my mother. It didn't change anything. My mother wasn't home more after that. I had a very absent father as well. So when I was in middle school and high school, my mother worked evenings at the hospital. So she would leave everything out. Dinner was all on the stove, ready to just be warmed up or prepared. 
And my father would come home and begrudgingly cook dinner. And then he would disappear in, in his office. And it was my job. So of course I had play practice and dance practice and jobs. So Jonathan and Johanna could be just sort of on their own. So I was the parent figure when my mom wasn't home. I'm tired of caring for my parents, quite honestly. And that sounds harsh. And I think putting it out there and just saying it like this is a part of the process for me. This really stuck out with me. And I don't want to, I don't want to parent my parents. When I'm angry with Kenny, one of the first things I'll say to him is I'm not your mother. And he'll get upset with me. He's, I'm not asking you to be my mother, but I feel like what he wants from me is somebody to take care of things. Well, it's a whole big circle. That's a whole big circle right there. The next place was Ikaria, Greece. So we have Okinawa, Japan. We have Sicily, which is in Italy. And now we have Greece. <laughs> okay, clearly <laughs> I got to move someplace. This is again, a remote community. It was an interesting. This was an island that had no harbor. So for, for hundreds of years, it was independent. It, it only, people that lived there had to forage for, for what, the, what was there. So if you, if you needed something, a small boat could leave and then come back with stuff, but there was no harbor. There was no place for a big, big freight boat to come and deliver goods. That's different now, of course, with airplanes and things like this. This island is, is a very resilient community. So resilience was a word that was key here, being resilient. I think I have resilience and I think it's a huge piece of my youthful 60-year-old existence. So they had a local herbal tea that everybody drank that was considered to be medicinal. Unprocessed honey. So this was an interesting, this was an interesting thing. So everybody was a beekeeper. Several people were beekeepers and they would take the hives and move them around depending on the season. So these bees pollinated a variety of different flowers. Oftentimes bees will pollinate what's nearby and that's where they stay. By moving the bees around, the honey had nutrients in it that came from a variety of different flowers and it's completely unprocessed. They do nothing to it. They take, you know, they take the hive out and so they eat it. It's completely natural, unprocessed honey. They have happy connections. They, they meet and connect with people. They're happy and joyful. They share their good things. They have a natural wine there. Both Okinawa and Sicily had, had wine, an alcoholic beverage that they drank that was also naturally created, no chemicals. And they dance and laugh. These people got together once a week. They'd party all night. I don't know if they drank all night, but they danced, they laughed, they connected. Their weekends were their downtime, their time to just be community. They work hard and they enjoy their work and all of their tasks bring them joy. They're also physically challenging and emotionally and spiritually fulfilling. So, so many of us in this country are counting the days until we retire. Only two more years at this place and then I can retire. And we all work in this country 40 or 50 hours a week. That's a lot of hours to not like what you're doing or feel, or feel disconnected from what makes you happy. None of that exists in these places. They're happy. They're happy with what they do. So if there was ever a reason to quit the job you hate and find one you, lo find one you love, this would be it. They have siestas and breaks. Both the other two places did as well. When they were talking about this island in Greece, this village in Greece, there was a man named Stamatis who grew up there on this remote island. And when he got to be an adult, he decided to move to America. And he moved here and he lived in the Midwest and he got married and raised a family. Very, very suburban American life. And in his 60s, in his early 60s, he was diagnosed with lung cancer, stage four lung cancer at age 66. So he said to his wife, his American-born wife, I want to go back. I want to die in Acaria. That's where I'll go to die. That's where I was born. That's where I wish to die. And he moved back to Acaria. In this show, he was 102. So not only did he not die at 66 from lung cancer, he lived 40 more years, almost 40 years. And when asked how that happened, he looked at the interviewer and said, I guess I forgot to die, right? So what happened was he changed his environment. He changed the reality of his life. This is something that sat with me as well. A lot of my environment, my house, all the stuff in my house, everything has a memory attached or a feeling. It can be an environment that's not healthy. We did the Molly B basket at the Christmas show. And every year I say, okay, I need to start making my own Molly B, Molly B gear because I don't have it. This is like probably three full years since I've had a really big Molly B merchandise sale. I just don't create an environment for myself that I have time to do these things. My environment, change my environment, right? What he says about that island is that we evolved in hardship and scarcity, and we now live in ease and excess. This was him. I went back to an environment that was evolved on hardship and scarcity. So what does that mean? Well, when you're, when you're living in hardship, you learn to be resilient, you learn to be resourceful, you learn to be grateful when things go well. You don't lose sight of the fact that you overcame something. And scarcity, you know, scarcity 
is a, is an extreme word, but you know, there's so many philosophies around less is best or less is more, right? Where having too much is unhealthy. And I'm saying this as I'm sitting in a room with bins and bins of things. Some that I haven't been able to throw away, some that I'm looking at right now and think, you know what, I'm ready to get rid of these things. I remember when Molly and Gracie, right before Molly died, the last few months of Molly's life, they were middle school and high school now. And so our house stopped being a house that little kids lived in. And it was really clean. It wasn't cluttered. It wasn't messy. It was wonderful. And I look at pictures now of it and there's so much floor space that's visible. And you know, after Molly died, our house just filled up with clutter and we just stopped. And, and it really became a very different reality. So after these three in Icaria, moving naturally, again, was a big thing that they did here. Their outlook on wine time, faith communities, connecting, family first, community, and eating wisely, plant-based wine moderation. They practice harahachibu as well. That's a Japanese term for eat to 80%, but none of them eat until they're full. They stop before they're full because eventually you feel full. If you satiated yourself, you've eaten enough. This goes into a CrossFit philosophy that I like as well, that says that you eat enough to fuel your body, but not so much that you hold on to weight you don't need. And again, this is not you know an all-you-can-eat buffet lifestyle choice here, right? So Loma Linda, California is in America. And, and the gentleman that did this whole show wanted to see if a place like this existed. And he did this, he went onto the CDC and just looked at age data looked at the census and where was a place that had a high level of old people in Loma Linda, California. So in the early 1900s, the Seventh-day Adventists sort of set up like, this is where we're going to have our, we're going to live. They started a hospital. They started a university. They created community. And so this is a very urban city. There's, you know, there's people drive. There are high-rise buildings. There's a lot of fast food restaurants and things that absolutely reek of Western culture and unhealthy eating. But there are also lots and lots of markets and every market has in it a place where healthy food is offered. What they do, their sort of key takeaways are volunteering. So when you're living in a little village and you work all day just to live, you're volunteering every day, taking care of your neighbors, having someone live with you that doesn't have family anymore, you know, getting together and having wine. All of these things are forms of volunteering. You're sharing yourself, right? So the Seventh-day Adventists create ways to volunteer. They run food banks. They collect clothing. They do all sorts of things to serve people in their community that need help. They go to nursing homes. They take people for walks. They read, that sort of thing. They also follow a plant-based diet. Again, not completely vegan or vegetarian, but for the most part, they don't eat meat. They're very strong in their faith. They don't eliminate other people from their lives that may not be Seventh-day Adventists, but they're very driven by their, by their beliefs and their spirituality. And again, they have their right tribe. They exist in a place that meets their social, emotional, and physical needs. They're well, they're in the right place. So they have group fitness activities. Pickleball is big there. <laughs> they have active social activities in groups. They, they do things together. They meet to go for walks. They feel that good health is just as contagious as bad health. That if you're living a good, happy life and you emanate that, that that's gonna be contagious. People are gonna pick up on that and wanna participate. They are culturally remote, meaning they don't spend a lot of time on TV. They don't spend a lot of time on social media. They spend a lot of time out and about connecting with others. And the pillars of their religion are physical activity, volunteering, serving humanity. And a question they ask themselves is, do you want to be dormant or productive? That's interesting. That's just interesting. Nutrition is key for them as well. They eat a lot of nuts and seeds, greens and beans. They do not eat a lot of meat. They don't drink alcohol here. So Seventh-day Adventists celebrate the Sabbath from Friday night at sunset to Saturday night at sunset. So I have had Seventh-day Adventists on my sports teams. And when there are Saturday races, they're not allowed to compete or even come because they're practicing their religion. And, you know, that doesn't fit into an American schedule, but never once would I make a girl or a boy compete on a day they couldn't. I remember I, when I was in college, it was almost sunset. It was a national championship and they had a schedule they were following and they fell behind. And one of the girls wasn't going to be able to run if the race was after sunset. And it was like a Friday night. They changed it so that it was before sunset and she ran really fast because she was afraid that she wouldn't finish in time. So anyway, that's, that's the Seventh-day Adventist. They have their, their day off. And on that day, they go to church, they go to choir practice, they walk, they relax, they get together in a social way. That's their down day, their day where their responsibilities are nil. 
So the next place was Costa Rica. So again, another nice warm place, right? All of these places are warm, called Nicoya. And the major thing that came out of their lifestyle is a phrase called plan de vida. And plan de vida is sense of purpose. All daily tasks are done by hand. Again, another place where you, you get up and you make your bed and you, you sweep your floor and you wash your windows and you do these things. You don't hire somebody else to do them. One of my favorite CrossFit classes has a woman in it named Joni and she cleans houses. She is so fit. Oh my gosh. I don't even know why she thinks she needs to come to a gym, but she's wonderful. But she'll say, you know what? I, I scrubbed this all day. I don't need to do arm stuff today. And I'll mix up the workouts for her. They have planned leisure time in Costa Rica. They have a siesta. They have family time and friend time. They have a time where they slow down. They also focus on nutrition. So in this village, in this community, they have ample small clinics and it's not a place to go and get medicine. It's a place to go and get dental care, to get nutritional advice, to get clean water, things that will help you stay well. And they're everywhere. The government is very supportive of a healthy population because they don't want illness. They don't have a big giant pharmaceutical drive, you know, funding their budget. So they advocate for actual health and not just the absence of illness, a very different definition here. And then their major food, one of the major things they eat, they call it the three sisters because it creates a complete protein, black beans, squash, like a winter squash and corn. So black beans, squash, and corn, those three things together create a complete protein. So here in my house now we do, we do crock pot meals. And I said to Kenny, from now on, every crock pot meal we make has to have corn and beans in it. And we have to add squash every day. Squash gets all mushy if you let it sit in there. It's a complete protein. How exciting is that? So the final place is Singapore. So Singapore is an island, but it's a city. There's like 5 million people living on an island that's smaller than the state of New Hampshire. It was a community built with purpose. And again, just like these other villages, the focus is health. So the government subsidizes healthy food. It is less expensive to buy brown rice than it is to buy white rice because brown rice is better for you. It is less expensive to buy fruit and vegetables than it is to go to McDonald's because fruit and vegetables are healthy for you and McDonald's isn't. One of the biggest issues in America around healthy eating is that it's catered to people with money. When you look at food kitchens, people donate packaged foods because they can sit in that food pantry for a long time, right? You know, if you donate tomatoes to a food drive, they have to be eaten in a day or two. They don't always make it to somebody's mouth. This is changing. I do see that this is changing. There's a lot of push now to include healthy options in food pantry donations, but it costs a lot of money. If you have $5, you can buy ramen, which is high in sodium, and maybe throw some vegetables in, but maybe canned vegetables that have been sitting in sodium. It's very, very hard to eat well in this country. It's expensive. That's not lost on me here. Singapore was once a poor fishing village, and now it's a mega healthy, wealthy community. So Wealthy here and wealthy there is very different, but people work there. You have working families. The government also subsidizes families who live near each other. So if you're a family and you're living people and nobody rents in Singapore, everybody owns where they live. There are no freestanding houses. It's all apartment complexes and high rises and things, but you own it. It's yours. You own that, those rooms in which you live. And the government will subsidize you if you have your elderly parents live nearby within walking distance. That's incredible. There are no, in this huge city, there are no nursing homes. There are no elder care facilities. Of course there are hospitals and things happen, but in a typical high rise building, the first floor is walkable, it's open, and it's full of markets and, and restaurants and things that will draw people together. The second floor is always healthcare so that it's easily accessible. Healthcare is free in these places as well. It's all government subsidized. And then the floors above are living. And so this is where, so elderly housing, if there is elderly housing, this is what it looks like. And the rooftops of these buildings are gardens, trees, grass, paths. They create nature in the middle of a city here. It's a city. So people do definitely drive, but it's a completely walkable city. There is no living abode in Singapore that isn't within walking distance to a health clinic, a hospital, a school, a place of work, a restaurant, a market. And on these walking paths and in these parks are exercise stations, places that you can stop and work out, do some pull-ups, do some sit-ups and push-ups. They don't need to move meaningfully in this community, right? It's a modern society. So a lot of everyday modern conveniences take away the natural movement they would get. So what does Singapore do? 
creates ways that people can easily exercise. A lot of the community events are dance classes, square dancing and ballroom dancing, things that get people together to move and to be healthy. So when, when asked how they stay young, work hard, be honest, stay humble. Activity is key. Sounds repetitive, doesn't it? They're doing the same thing place after place after place. There's a saying that came out of this particular society, and it says, policy is implementation, implementation is policy. So it's wonderful to talk about things, you know, lose weight, be healthy. That's one thing. But implementing a policy that allows that to happen or creates opportunities for it, that isn't just injecting yourself in the stomach with a needle so you can lose weight and still eat like crap, implementing policies and then implementing the policy becomes the way you live is key to health in these places. Health is health, not absence of fitness. Chronic illness is treated with giving people the means to help themselves. Chronic illness isn't giving somebody a pill and saying you need to be in the hospital or maybe you should move into assisted living. They give you things to do that will make you healthy so that you can care for yourself. I said before, they subsidize healthy foods. On a typical day, people in Singapore walk about four miles. That's 16 times around a track. That's actually not all that much. I could probably walk four miles in an hour maybe 15 minutes a mile. If I walked briskly, probably an hour. So there were some statistics that followed. And then I'll get into the community that this gentleman created here in America. In 1922, 70% of widows or widowers lived with their families. This is in the United States. So 70% lived with their families. In 2023, 70% of widows and widowers live alone or in assisted living facilities. It's completely opposite now. It doesn't dawn on us to pull our people in. That's where Singapore created the proximity housing grant. So if, you, if your family is close to you, you get, you get help subsidy buying a house. The economic argument is that to reduce healthcare costs, you must produce a human benefit, incentive for better health. This was pretty amazing. So there are places in the United States that have adopted some of these policies, really, really making it easier for their residents and citizens to live a healthy life. So this guy went to a town in Michigan, I'm sorry, Minnesota, called Albert Lee, Minnesota. And he wanted to know, can we create a blue zone? So he went to government leaders, city leaders, and laid out all this data. So they had a town meeting and they put it on TV so people could see it. And they talked about what would the city be interested in trying this? And they said, yes. So this was hundreds of thousands of dollars. The first thing they did was notice that the downtown was failing. Nobody went down there. Everyone had to drive. In America, we created suburbs, which creates a reliance on cars. If you live out in the middle of nowhere, you have to get in your car to do everything. If your car breaks down or you can't afford a car, it just created isolation and dependence on money to pay for things that were required to live, okay? They built all these walking trails. They changed roads to walkways. They narrowed roads and widened sidewalks. They created parks when they saw empty lots so that all the major neighborhoods of, of this town, of Albert Lee, could walk downtown. They created volunteering. They did citywide volunteer efforts and people could sign up. Another thing they did was the people that came in and did this created random groups of people to meet once a week to walk. You didn't sign up to be with your friends. You got put in a group with people you maybe didn't know. And what they found after a year is that these were people's friends now. They had cultivated friendships with people in their groups. And that the groups, they still walked with their assigned group, but that what they did was they created other groups. And now people are really creating communities for themselves. They went to grocery stores and they revamped the grocery store so that the healthy food options were right there when you walked in and that they were less expensive than non-healthy options. They created an environment where people could really take hold of their lives and work together and do well. And after several years of this, life expectancy went up and they, they charted this by questionnaires that people did. And what ended up happening is life expectancy increased in, these, in this town. I have no idea now what that's like. I remember I was mentioning this to somebody in a conversation like, oh yeah, they debunked all that. Okay, well, I don't know how you debunk eating well, having a community being happy. I don't know that there's anything to debunk. This was an incredible experience for me. And I think one of the reasons it, it stuck with me is that I am a firm believer that there are so many things we can't change that if we can focus on the things that we can change, then we can have a measure of happiness that we might not have. I'm going to go through what I started with. And I'm going to give one example of something that I can change to bring this into my life. So the first one is move naturally. I can walk more, I use my car because I'm always in a hurry and some of the places I go are far away and now it's crappy weather and it's winter. When I was doing the 75 hard, I made a point to walk every day. Sometimes that was my second workout. This is something that I can put back into my life. I live right near a park, which is one mile around. 
I could just go out and walk around that park once or start running again, but move naturally. So I do the laundry here. I pick things up. I go up and down the stairs. I do quite a bit of moving in my life. I'm not sure how I would add more movement in. I'm pretty good there. Finding my right tribe. So I belong to the Baha'i faith. And for me, there aren't a lot of Baha'is around me that I live near that I have a lot in common with or would socialize with. I haven't gone to a lot of Baha'i events. Again, these aren't things I can walk to. When I grew up on Essex Street, there were like four Baha'i families on Essex Street. So every Baha'i event that occurred, I could walk to. And I miss that. I really do miss that. There is a Baha'i school in Elliott, Maine called Greenacre, and they have wonderful events. And that's something that I could reincorporate into my life. Also, my friend Polly is a Baha'i. We don't spend nearly enough time together. So that's something I could do right there, finding my right tribe. My CrossFit community is, is an incredible right tribe for me already. CrossFit philosophy just matches so much of this. So I feel that between those two things, I have a right tribe. Sense of belonging, I have to feel, I have to be honest, I don't feel like I really belong at all. Like I'm on a school board and I know that there are people on that school board that hang out together. They're friends outside of the school board. You know, the school board meeting will end and people will get in these little groups and start chatting and I'm not in any of those groups. And maybe I'm oversensitive to it, but I do know that I'm excluded from a lot of those conversations. I'm not sure I really care, but there are times when I just think, okay, you know, whatever. I know that, you know, I have a two-year-old and most people that have two-year-olds are young enough to be my children or even my grandchildren. So I don't have a big mom circle like I had with Gracie and Molly. And I didn't have a huge one then. So finding a sense of belonging will be a challenge for me, but I'm going to work on that. Downshift, jello time. This is something I truly need to do. And sadly, one of the things I do when I downshift is play on my phone. That's a terrible way to downshift. I think what I need to do is downshift and either read or maybe just go for a walk. Maybe that's when I walk, when I'm having my downshift time. Maybe I invite someone to walk with me. Maybe I write someone a letter. You know, I'm trying to think of ways that I can just downshift and relax, you know, and not be so stressed. Purpose. Do you have a purpose? Do you think you have a purpose? If so, what? So I know that right now I feel like my main purpose is to keep Molly's legacy alive and to be of help and assistance to other mothers who lose children. So I feel that I have a purpose. I think sometimes I let my purpose become detrimental to myself. I have children. I have Gracie and Jack. Those two are a huge reason to get out of bed every morning. So I feel pretty good in the purpose department. Plant slant. So I did say to Kenny, now Kenny's a transplant recipient, kidney transplant. And I was macrobiotic for a while when I got real sick. And that's a very vegan diet. I have to tell you, the amount of energy it can take to digest certain foods can play a major factor in health. So I would love to eat less meat and eat more plants. I notice at the end of a given day, I don't eat enough fruits or vegetables at all. On a typical day, I have one serving of vegetables with dinner. I have an apple and a banana and some blueberries often, and that's it. And that's not enough at all. I should have a big salad for lunch. I am not eating greens like I should. So in terms of dietary, I need to definitely put greens into my life. Wine at five. So I've straddled the alcoholism fence my whole life. And my religion espouses no alcohol. It does acknowledge that it can have medicinal purposes. I've never been a big fan of wine. And I think probably the least healthy thing Kenny and I could do is have a cocktail hour together on a regular basis. We just too easily slide back into alcoholic drinking. We've had drinks. So I'm recording this in early December. I'm sure by the time this comes out, we will have had drinks again. This is a tough time of year. And sometimes I'm just, you know, I can't, fight it sometimes. I will say for the first time ever, we've had drinks three or four times now. And every time we've stopped before we've had too much. That's huge for us. Always one or two drinks. And then we want one or two more. Go get more, go get more. And we go get more. You know, that's just an unhealthy way to be. And we acknowledge that. So to me, that's growth, but I'm not sure. I think the wine at five for me is more about like a happy hour. And so many of these things are easier when the weather is nice, when it's not dark at four o'clock, everyone's in their homes. So maybe I have to create that in my home. And then the 80% rule. This isn't a problem for me. I eat because I have to, not because I like to sit and enjoy eating. So I don't typically overeat because I don't want to waste time eating. <laughs> Doesn't that sound terrible? When I was following a macrobiotic diet, that's a very, very precise way of eating. And you have to sit, you have to chew your food thoroughly. You have to have no distractions. Soft music is okay, but you have to eat purposely and purposefully. And I had a really a struggle with that because I just wanted to eat and be on to the next thing. Jello time, right? So I think I can do it. This has been a lot of information, but the key takeaways here for me is mind, body, spirit, that we have to take care of our heart. 
in how we feel about ourselves, we take care of our brains and how we process information. We have to take care of our body and make sure we feed it nutritional things so that it functions well for us. And we have to take care of our essence, the bigger picture, how we fit into the world and, and why we're here and what we're supposed to do. So this wasn't a story. I hope it wasn't too boring for you. I absolutely suggest that you watch the series, even if you don't take anything from it, even if it isn't at all how you think or feel. I learned so much. And the, the other really fun part is I got to look at a lot of really old people with the little toothless smiles, laughing and, and sharing their knowledge and wisdom. We live in a culture here in America that disparages old people. There was just a political campaign here. I've talked about this before. And the young new people that just moved to Concord that think, you know, all these old people that lived here their whole lives, they need to be moved, move along. I just get sad by that. Maybe it's because I'm now becoming old, right? But, you know, I've been here 60 years. So, you know, a 25 year old might think they know everything, but I have 35 years on them. And it's not 35 years of duh. So I think we have to always be open to who's ahead of us and who's behind us. There's a lot that young people know that I don't and that I definitely need help with. And we don't always understand each other, but that's the beauty of it, right? The way that you come to understand one another is to communicate and be together. As this comes out, it is the day after Christmas, I think, December 26th. So I hope your holiday was well. The new year is coming up. And with it, all those resolutions that we seem to attach to the, the day, January 1st, so rather than make a big list of things you'll never accomplish, I have a suggestion. Take this list of nine things, just Google living to 100 secrets of the blue zones and find the graphics and look at them and look them over and just pick one thing in your life that you could improve upon a little bit from each area and see how it goes. That's sort of my plan. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. I was going to read a book a week last year and I think I read three books. I mean, I've read more than three books, but certainly not a book a week. Thank you for listening. Be good to yourself. <laughs> be good to someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444 on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins. <laughs>